my name is Dean Annan, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Village Church. And if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you afterwards. I will be down here. So we're going to start an Advent series called Orchestrated and put um, our Leviticus series on hold until 2024. And so um, Christmas time, you know, can be busy, right? Very beautiful. If you just look around, it's so beautiful in here right now. Uh, it can be fun. It can be fast-paced. I thought I would just start with um, uh, some really bad Christmas jokes, okay? <laughs> it's kind of full disclosure. I thought, hey, these are good. No, they're actually pretty bad. Um, who likes to bake? Anybody like to bake here? All right, this one's for you. What did the gingerbread man put on his bed? Cookie sheet. That one's a little hard. Cookie sheet. Okay, but how about this? How about those who are learning Spanish, maybe, or who are Spanish speakers? You probably know where I'm going with this um, This one. How do sheep say Merry Christmas to each other? Somebody. Come on, 815 got this. Yes, Feliz Navidad. There we go. That's, all right, for parents, I know it's bad. Forgive me, Lord. All right, parents, what is every parent's favorite Christmas song? Yes, thank you, Silent Night. All right, that's all I have for you today. Thank the Lord Jesus above. God cares. Um, you know, God cares about us, doesn't he? I mean, Christmas time can be fun. There can be a lot of jokes. There can be laughter, even lame jokes, all that celebration. But we know at the same time that, that, that Christmas time for many people is just very hard, even in this congregation, even in the last few months, even in the last few years. Because you've lost people. You've lost loved ones, people you love. And the, and the grief that you're going through, maybe it's even been years and it's still really not subsiding. It can last. So I just want to ask that you give yourself a gift in this season of giving this year. Give yourself a gift, and that is the gift of remembering. Take time and thank God for the blessings that that person was that you've lost uh, him or her. And not just that in the past and the blessings God gave you then, the good memories, but also just today. What is God doing in your life today? Um, what are those blessings today that you can thank him for? And know that you are loved by God and know that you're loved by your church and we see you and we pray that God would this season give to you um, his love, that you would know that you are loved too and that the hope, the peace, and the joy and the love of Christ of this Advent season you will experience. Uh, Advent... It means arrival, it means the appearing or coming into place, and Christians all over the world celebrate this, this first advent of Jesus Christ, meaning where Jesus took on flesh, the incarnation, he became the God-man to save. And so, how do we get to this point? This point of the first advent where Jesus came. Well, we're going to see that over this series called Orchestrated. Uh, we'll see the roots of this redemption that God brings through both men and women. We're going to see God using faithful rejects. That kind of sounds awful, doesn't it? A little bit. It sounds a little harsh. But these are heroes of the faith. Sometimes very remarkable. But other, other times very unremarkable. And other times uh, downright sinners. Like us at times. God uses sinners through his story. He doesn't need a story of redemption. But then at just the right time, he sent Jesus Christ. And so our, our series for about three weeks here, um, we'll look at uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the genealogy of Jesus. In these first two weeks, we'll look at some men first, and then the second week, we'll look at some women. And then 
as we go into December 24th then, at just the right time, we'll be in Galatians chapter 4. So, but for this week and next week, just these first two weeks, God does not include people you would normally expect in his plan, as his plan to redeem the world, uh, to bring his promised Messiah, his Christ. In other words, God's not afraid to do what he'll do. He'll include people maybe you wouldn't expect him to include, and he does. He doesn't exclude sometimes like we exclude in this story of redemption. To put it another way, God uses remarkable people in his song of redemption. And instead of story of redemption, I'll just say song of redemption. Why? Because our series is called Orchestrated. The entire Old Testament was orchestrated by God. The master conductor, the coming of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament people were all his musicians, you know, figuratively speaking, of course. Uh, if you like symphony, it's, it's woodwinds and brass, percussions, strings, all of that. And God is, God is the conductor, though, in all of this. Remember, God is the master conductor. It's as if the symphony is about to begin just before the Christ child comes in the first advent. The song of redemption starts. But the, but the musicians, they're done then with their rehearsal. They're done with their practicing. Um, they're finally uh, tuning up. And then you, you see the conductor He or she raises his baton, right? Or her baton, and then it begins. So all that rehearsal, it's over with. The tuning's over, and and finally, those who are watching, those who are waiting, those who are listening, who are actually listening, they see and hear this conductor. And he begins a symphony, and it's an incredible symphony, and it's a beautiful thing, the coming of the Christ. The Hebrew people, they were waiting for this. And and frankly, the, the entire world was promised it, the coming of Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's story of redemption doesn't fit our expectations. This uh, song of redemption, it's, it's being played by God, the orchestration of the lineage, the, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of that. Actually, it, it probably seemed quite odd what was happening. It, But really, if the Hebrews early on had really listened to their scripture, what God had been saying through the prophets, perhaps it wouldn't have been quite as odd to their ears what just happened, what was happening, what was taking place. And what do I mean by this? What I mean is this, that the king of the universe would come from a lineage of troubled people who often failed and often sinned, that the king of the universe was born in a stable, that the king of the universe would become incarnate, would become a man, that this same king of the universe, that Jesus would serve his creation, his people, that he would sacrifice himself and die on a cross for unholy people, for sinners, that that salvation would come by faith and not by performance or works. Again, God's story of redemption doesn't fit our expectations. If you can imagine with me a 300-pound bird with wings that can't fly, it's a bird with wings that can't fly. (laughs) Can you imagine that? God can. He can imagine that. Um, I wonder if God ever discussed his creation before he created with his angels. Can you imagine an angel sitting in God's boardroom? You know, God's at the whiteboard, and the angel leans in and says this, so it's a bird. Hmm. It's 300 pounds, God, and it has wings, and it runs, and can't fly, right? Why can't you just make another deer? Um, (laughs) God does what he does. And it's always perfect and it's always good every single time. The Bible says this, God chose 
what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no, why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is what God does. This is what he did when he brought the Christ child. Matthew records it in his introduction. I want to talk for just a moment, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 17. We'll talk for a moment about, about uh, Matthew, just the book. You know, this, this book, this, this first gospel, is distinctively Jewish when compared to the other gospels, for sure. The parallelism, parallelism, the vocabulary, the style, the way that Matthew writes here. And so we need to look at it then from the Jewish perspective. And, and certainly one of the most fundamental things you can ever do in reading the Bible, hearing the Bible, trying to understand the Bible, trying to put it into use is one thing, and that is to look at it from what is the author saying to the original audience? So we need to put our shoes in the original audience's shoes. Again, what are they hearing? What are they understanding? And then we can ask the question, God, what are you calling me to believe? What are you calling me to feel? What are you calling me to do? At the end of our passage today, this is just way at the end. This is verse 17. We're going to put it on the board or put it on the screen. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The times of Abraham, the times of David, and the Babylonian exile, they all mark the beginnings of these three periods in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. There's three different sections in there. The genealogy here of Jesus Christ, which is there, culminates in the coming of Christ. But the sections are verse 2 is Abraham, verse 6 is uh, David, uh, verse 11 is, uh, 12 is the deportation to Babylon of the people. I'll talk about that a little later. There's 14 generations that Matthew is talking about in each of these sections, probably because he's using uh, literary symmetry here with these 14 generations. Uh, in each of these, Matthew is deciding to highlight certain things for us. Abraham. Father of the Jews introduces the first section. David, the royal line of Jews, introduces the second section. The third section, the deportation and return of Israel from Babylon around 600 B.C. These are the three parts in the genealogy, in Matthew's genealogy. This is Israel's history. So if we're the ancient Jews, we're hearing this, we're seeing this. It's being read to us or we're reading it. And Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's also under the ancient Near East culture. And so his genealogy, the way he looks at it, the way he writes it to his people might be a little different than our modern way of understanding. Is Matthew's genealogy accurate? Yes. <laughs> it's absolutely accurate. Does he have to include... Every person in Jesus' genealogy? No. No, he's not bound by any of the rules we might think. Absolutely not, because he's doing one thing. He's highlighting something, something significant, significant people, even significant events that point people there so they would think about their history. And he's getting to a point. And that point is this. But before I tell you the point, uh, Matthew, <laughs> Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew, Matthew was a guy who, who was very um, obviously concise in what he did and orderly, but he had a purpose. And he wants us to understand the purpose of this introduction in the book of Matthew, these first 17 verses, this genealogy. Look at verse 1 and verse 17 on the screen. Again, this book ends 
our little passage. And we're not going to look at the whole passage, but verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's huge. The son of David and the son of Abraham. That matters too. We'll get to that. To the Christ, 14 generations. The word Christ here is all important. This is the word Christ in the New Testament, Old Testament. We think of the word Messiah. Best helps us understand this means the anointed one that God would send. He begins then with genealogical proof. That's what he's doing here really in chapter 1. And he ends his book, the book of Matthew, chapter 28, the resurrected Christ. You remember the resurrected Christ there is being worshipped by the disciples? From birth to life to death to resurrection, Matthew's all about really one thing that's proving that Jesus is the Messiah to his people to know, actually so the whole world would know. Looking back at the lineage then, he starts in this genealogy for Jesus. These first 17 verses, we can learn a lot from him. So why a genealogy? It just sounds weird. You know, I don't know that we spend a lot of time. Few of you probably, has anybody spent time looking up your own like roots and done that whole family tree thing. It's pretty cool, isn't it? This is so important to them, though, here. Let me give you three quick reasons as to why. First one is this. Genealogies, they substantiate, and it substantiates the Bible's historical accuracy. You know, these are real people. This isn't like a parable kind of thing, this genealogy. You know, this isn't... Um, these aren't fables or myths. This is real characters that were written down in their Hebrew scriptures. They knew that these people existed. And it kept generation after generation. They understood these are real people. So historically accurate. Number two, why genealogy? The genealogies also confirm prophecy. I won't go into all the prophecy that these genealogies, they, they would make you go back in time and say, oh, that's right, this person, there was this Prophecy to that person. Now, let me just give you one example. One example is the Messiah was promised to come from the line of David. Again, we have to put ourselves into the original uh, listeners and the original audience's ears and their shoes and try to understand what they're hearing. And they would ask a question like, why this genealogy even? And, and Matthew would answer. He'd say, because the Old Testament's really clear. That's what he would tell them. The promised Messiah, just one example of a, of a um, prophecy again, the promised Messiah had to be of the royal line of David. Remember those words in verse 1 before it said the son of David? No exceptions, no mulligans, no way around it, no mistakes, period. Had to be Messiah through royal line of David. The prophet Isaiah talks about the Messiah Jesus this way. And if you're keeping notes, it's Isaiah 9, really a famous one, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. I won't read the whole thing. He's talking about this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, meaning he will rule, will be upon his shoulders. And then it says his name will be called, and there's multiple names that this promised Messiah is given. Mighty God, meaning he is God. Everlasting Father, he is eternal. It goes on, in verse 7 talks about his government again. There will be no end. It will be forever talking of this Messiah. And then it says, on the throne of David... And over his kingdom on the throne of David. David's throne. Again, the Messiah must come through the throne of David. Messiah's genealogy just proves over and over again that David didn't descend just from Abraham. Not just from the father of the Israelite nation, but also from David, the founder of Israel's royal dynasty. And that's important. There's a couple of reasons for genealogy. The last one up there is that we're going to learn from these people. Absolutely, we will learn from these people. But again, if we're these 
Jews a couple thousand years ago, what are we hearing? When we see Abraham and David, a couple things at least come to mind right away. It's these two great, amazing covenants. These two promises, when we hear their names together, they're going to understand and hear that Matthew is reminding them of these two great covenants in their history. And if you like to look them up, there's the Abrahamic and the Davidic. And the Abrahamic or the Abraham's covenant, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15. You can go look those up. The other one, the uh, one for I um, through David was 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the references are there on the slide. So God vowed, speaking of Abraham, God vowed an unconditional covenant to Abraham. God said he would provide offspring. He said he would provide land for his people once and for all and then for all time. And that he, Abraham, and his descendants would be a blessing to the whole world, a source of blessing to the whole world the Jewish people would be. And by the way, Satan hates that. We continue to see that to this day. Satan hates it hatred for the Jewish people. And eventually in time then, this promise, this covenant, according to Genesis, this one's important, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, where it says uh, the word offspring, that Abraham would have an offspring. There's an individual, this is important, an individual use of the word offspring or seed or serah in the Hebrew, which means an individual will come, this individual, one particular descendant it's talking about in Genesis 22, 18. This one descendant will come one day and it says there will rule over his enemies and bless the world. In other words, the Messiah Jesus would come from Abraham. And we see this mentioned in the book of Matthew. But David, David's up in verse 6 talking about the Davidic uh, covenant. This reminds the Jews of God's covenant with David. It, it guaranteed that David's descendants, of which, by the way, Jesus, of course, is one, would rule over Israel's kingdom forever. Sometimes we call that the house of David, it says in Scripture, or the, the dynasty of David would rule forever. God confirmed that in Psalm 89, Psalm 89 says this, speaking of David here, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one, meaning David. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So Matthew, when he talks about Abraham, he talks about David and this genealogy. He wants the readers to remember these covenants, these great promises through those two men and their descendants. And they are literally, when we're looking at the beginning of the book of Matthew, they're literally being fulfilled right now through the Messiah, Jesus. These things, these covenants are tied directly to Jesus, and that's the proof. Jesus' lineage was historical. It fulfilled prophecies, and it completely is in line with these great promises. But do you ever have doubts? Maybe, I don't know, about, about Christ or about the Bible or something about your faith. I mean, I have. I mean, it, it happens. It doesn't freak me out. It doesn't freak me out. Uh, I'm a pastor. It doesn't freak me out. I hope it doesn't freak you, freak you out um, either. Um, why? Because, so profound here already. <laughs> doubts are thoughts. <laughs> I know that sounds silly and elementary, but let's put doubts in the right category. They're thoughts. They're just thoughts. And the reason we might doubt Jesus at time, the reason we might doubt what he has done, the reason we might doubt the scripture is simply because of a couple reasons. We're either misinformed by incorrect information, 
or we're misguided by our feelings. Uh, incorrect feelings or perhaps misguided feelings. Incorrect information or misguided feelings. It happens. It happens to all of us at times. Uh, maybe more than we want to admit, but that's okay. You know, our faith in Christ is not based on feelings or, or, or faith itself. It's based on history. It's based on what happened. God gives us so many reliable proofs, way beyond what we could actually stomach or chew on or eat. We can try and it's good, but there's so much evidence, way more than just this genealogy that we're talking about today. There's overwhelming evidence for the credible eyewitness accounts of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ that would hold up in any court of law. There's uh, so much archaeological evidence for the Bible to be true over the last 150 years or so. It's unbelievable that it is believable. <laughs> the fulfilled prophecy is amazing time and time again if you spend time looking at that. And you know, through that then, the science of probability done by PhDs in mathematics has statistically shown over and over again that Jesus must be the Messiah. No one else could have done that, what he did. The proof is so overwhelming, but... Do we still doubt? Yes. Why? We're human. Is it okay to doubt? Sure. Do we need to doubt? No. But when you do, and when you study through it, and you think through it, you're going to grow every single time. That's what I love about that. It doesn't freak me out at all to doubt. It's more of a challenge. It's a time when God's going to grow you. So Matthew wants his audience to see this masterpiece, this symphony, if you will, of God's orchestration of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Why? So they will believe they will believe their Messiah has come. That's proof. Thinking of proof. Talking about why Matthew wrote this. But now I want to talk about the people for a little bit. The people in this. And we're just going to pick on a few here. Not pick on, I don't mean that way. But we're going to pick up some, a few of the names. Verse 2. Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says this. And I'll read part of this anyways. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and it goes from there. But I want to focus on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I could talk about Judah. Do you remember Judah? Remember Judah was the, uh, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and do you remember one of the first times in Scripture we see Judah, what he's doing? He's plotting. He's part of the primary plot to sell his brother. Do you remember his brother's name? Into slavery, they were going to sell him. Joseph. There was a whole musical done about that, wasn't there? <laughs> they were going to sell him into slavery. That was Judah, him and his brothers. And there's a lot of things that happen in verses 3 through 6. It doesn't look very pretty, the names that are there. This is the first 14 generations. I'm going to focus more on just these first folks I mentioned. If we go back to Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12, you don't have to look there, but those are some of the references. You go back, and what you see is, as far as Abraham is concerned, that Abraham was called out of the idolatrous life. They were idolaters, Abraham and his people were. In Ur of Chaldeans, that's where he comes from. It's a cool, cool, na cool name. <laughs> Ur of Chaldeans, that's cool. Um, <laughs> but they worshiped the moon god, so not so cool. And God called him out of that. God called him out of that. Abraham was given then an unconditional promise. This covenant, I already talked about that, so I won't go into that. But it was, it was to Abraham, and then through his descendants, it would be him and Sarah, would have an offspring, all of that, and that's all good. And, and Abraham believed. And we know he believed because we can see what he did. I like to say that faith has legs. And in this case, literally, because Abraham left his homeland and he followed his homeland and he followed God's plan, demonstrating faith, but also he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. When God called him to sacrifice his son 
Isaac, though it was just a test, Abraham was going to, and thankfully God, of course, said no and stopped it. But all that is good, right? And so the Jewish listeners, again, we're getting in their shoes. They're, 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 they're thinking about Abraham. They're seeing this genealogy play out, this example of faith, Abraham. That's all good. Everybody's happy. Except they begin to remember, of course, when they're reading this and hearing this read in the synagogues and churches and other places, they're, they're seeing that um, there's issues. Do you remember Abraham's issues? Uh, he dishonored his wife, Sarah, dramatically, wanted to protect himself, wanted to protect his possessions as they're traveling through two different kings' lands. He's willing to offer up his wife's body sexually to a couple of different kings so that he can protect himself. This is what Abraham did. But thankfully, God intervened, and that didn't happen. Abraham also chose not to wait for the Lord's promise to come true through him and Sarah because they were promised to have a son, but apparently they couldn't wait, and they disobeyed God, and Abraham and Sarah came with a plot, and the plot was Abraham would sleep with Hagar, uh, the maidservant, and have another son because apparently they thought God forgot about them, but they were disobeying God. God clearly said, this is important, Genesis 17, 19, that Sarah... He's talking to Abraham. Sarah will bear you a son, and the name will be Isaac. And through him, through Isaac, the covenant will continue. And clearly, God says his covenant is with Isaac and through Isaac. But God didn't disqualify Abraham. So when God chooses someone, like choosing you to faith in his family, he can't and he doesn't, he won't unchoose you. You're not disqualified either. He didn't disqualify Abraham. But Isaac, speaking of Isaac then, another name in here of, of the men at least today. Isaac also dishonored his wife, Rebekah, just like Abraham did. Because Isaac lied to a king, to Abimelech, a king, into thinking that his wife, Rebekah, was his sister, again, to protect his own uh, self. Apparently, Isaac didn't take the covenant so seriously. And then Isaac himself was deceived by his son. Here's another name, Jacob, because Jacob would get the, so that Jacob could get the firstborn or steal the firstborn blessing from his brother Esau. And so when I looked at this and was reading this again, <clears throat> some words came to mind, and I almost don't want to say them, but I think they're true. And it's sad. What we just saw here are liars, manipulators, and deceivers. And it kind of gets almost worse as you go through the lineage here and go back in the genealogy. But God is patient with all of them. He's patient because God's redemption did not hinge on their character, but on his promise. Did you hear that? It's not your character. It's not your performance. It's not your goodness. It's his promise. That's how big he is, and that's how good he is. And, and that's just a few of these names in this first section, but verse 6. Look with me, verse 6. I'll put the beginning of verse 6 up here. He's talking about David now. Moving on. And Jesse, the father of King David. So David initially was the youngest of the, of the tribe of Jesse, the people of the clan of Jesse, and too, too small, it seems, to really be the king initially when they first checked him out. You know, David was out in the wilderness, not making much of an impression of anything except maybe to a few sheep. Um, except he did. Impress God. David's character, his heart, got God's attention. Everyone else seems to ignore David because he was young. 
Maybe he hadn't done too much. But all that matters was the heart, and God sees the heart. No matter how young, no matter what you think you may or may not have done, God sees the heart every time. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's what matters. In Matthew's genealogy, David, who uh, becomes this, you know, well, he was an outstanding shepherd, great poet he became, a warrior we know he became, a humble man, a man who became king. And all the Jewish people think, yes, this is so great. They're so proud when they hear this beginning of verse 6 and the rise of Israel during David's time, you know, where uh, they had a high point in their history. <clears throat> and then something strange happens. Look at the next part in verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon, okay, by the wife of Uriah. I mean, does that ring a bell? Or if you're not familiar with the story, look at that again. <clears throat> look at the end of that sentence. Matthew uses this approach, really? In the genealogy, as he starts the genealogy, his gospel? What a buzzkill Matthew is. <clears throat> I mean, he reminds us here that God's select. King David lusts after and stole another man's wife, Bathsheba, has relations with her and conceives a son, Solomon, and then he conspired to kill her husband, Uriah. The name is right there, Uriah, in the genealogy. Uriah's name, sin and scandal. That's what this is about. Let me reuse this slide. I had it up before. God's redemption did not hinge on their character, but on his promise, his promise. So from then on, verses 6 through 11, uh, we starting with Solomon. You know, there's more immorality in this lineage as it, as it flows out here, more degradation. Solomon disobeys God. Solomon becomes quite an idolater, frankly. And there's a few good kings in here in this genealogy, a few uh, evil kings for sure. God's story of redemption here, they are being reminded, the audience that's hearing this is being reminded that the story of redemption is full of ugly stuff. That's why I love to meet with people and talk to them about their stories, their story. And I like to share my story and have people share their story. That they would tell their story and we could talk through their story, their journey, maybe to, to faith in Christ, what that looked like, maybe for redemption or salvation or maybe uh, other things about how God is using other parts and pieces and parcels of their life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, whatever, um, and I ask people to be as honest as they can be or to be as transparent in their stories that make sense. Just do that. Why? Because when we do, when we include all the stuff in our story as we tell others about what God has done, then they'll see God at every turn and other people will see God in your story at every turn. God's story of redeeming people has always included the good, the bad, and the ugly all the time. We see it today. We see it in the lineage of Jesus Christ, right? So if, if God is willing to not hide history, if God is willing to not rewrite history, we don't need to either. God redeems and reaches people through his story and our stories as well. Finally, um, we see in this genealogy Anyways, no, I'm not really concluding. I just said finally. <laughs> so you stay with me. Finally, <laughs> we see in the genealogy after many writings, 
uh, Israel's sin becomes so great in ancient Israel that God at that time would no longer put up with it and he gave Israel, the nation of Israel, over to their enemies. King Nebuchadnezzar II comes in with the Babylonians and they, they defeat and capture and take into captivity for 70 years the, uh, Israel's people. You see in verse 11, and guess what? Yep, Matthew puts it in there. Here it is. Verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Thanks, Matthew. You put that in there. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and it goes on. Yep, there's Babylon right there, twice in two verses. You know, the, the genealogy continues. And, but, but here's what's important. Think about you're in the shoes of the people hearing this, the Jews, and, and, and what is happening right now while they're reading this early on? They're under Rome's oppression. They're under the domination of Rome while this is happening. Um, it's a hopeless state. At least they think. They're being, uh, this reminded them of the, their people being controlled by Babylon in exile, captivity, hopelessness. But God is a God of hope, not hopelessness. If you hear anything else today, please hear that, that God is a God of hope not hopelessness, and Matthew is opening that up for us. God keeps his promises. God works in spite of flaws and sin, our flaws and our sin, and God gives hope, and he redeems. Matthew's saying that God's symphony, as he begins this genealogy, isn't and wasn't over, because there's another movement. There's a movement of God as we're reading through this genealogy. There's a movement. It's the final verse in the last movement, look at verse 16. Here it is on the screen. Matthew verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16 says, And Jacob, of course, this is not the same Jacob as before, and the father, uh, the father of Joseph, here it is, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Now, if you go back then and you know the history of some of the early unbelieving uh, Jews, you would know that they would have scoffed at these names. But Matthew purposely puts those names in there, Joseph and Mary. They would have said something like, well, Joseph's just like those other men that couldn't control themselves, but actually Jesus' birth was a virgin birth. Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew, it seems, is using Jesus' legal uh, father, Joseph, in this lineage, probably to give the legal ancestry by which Jesus was the legitimate successor to the throne of David. But anyways, uh, Matthew's, um, really, he's clearing up the name here. Joseph and Mary. Joseph protected his wife, unlike Abraham and Isaac, right? Joseph was uh, pure. He maintained his purity, unlike David, and Joseph was a righteous man. Look at verse 17 again. I won't, I won't read it. We already had it up there. But as you see this conclude throughout these generations, the genealogy of Jesus is critical to answer the question, is Jesus the promised Messiah or not? And that is what Matthew is driving home. The answer is yes. Jesus fulfilled the covenant's lineage requirements perfectly as well as all these other divine aspects that Jesus fulfilled. And so Jesus redeems unexpected things and unexpected people 
even with their flaws and failures, because he promised to. That's why. A couple of things we could do with this. What could we do with this? Two so what's I have. You're never disqualified, ever, from God's redemptive plan. Matthew wanted us to hear and to see God's grace. That's an important word. Perhaps I haven't used that in this message yet, but I am now. Matthew wanted them and us to hear, even through sin, people turn back to God because of his grace, because of his mercy especially, he will take them back. You might have words in your head right now today, perhaps even walking in here, maybe you said these words before, words like, God can't use me, or I'm disqualified, or God must be done with me. I've actually heard people say that. But here's the thing about that, and to be as kind as possible, those are theologically incorrect at every turn. Because what that is, is it has a low view of God. Because you're not understanding the great grace and mercy, what he has done in the gospel through Jesus Christ. Anytime you think like that, please don't believe those words. It's not true. Remember the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You are never disqualified from his plan because he loves you that much. It's based on his promise, not your performance. Speaking of that, the second so what? God still looks for faith. He looks for faith, not perfection in his people. That's what we see in this genealogy, right? People turn back to God. That's great over and over. You don't need to be perfect. Jesus took care of that. That's Jesus' job, not your job. Jesus is perfect. We don't have to be. God looks for faith. He looks for obedience. He looks for confession. He looks for repentance. It's just kind of a cycle in our life. And this Christmas season, if we'll turn to him in faith, obey him, confess our sins, repent, we are on the way to having our hearts ready to meet Jesus this season. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love through Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you've taken care of it all. Thank you that your grace is sufficient. Thank you that we can trust your promises. God, I pray that we will believe yet again that in the morning we wake up and the night when we go to bed, God, you will remind us how good you are. It's not based on our performance, but it's based on your goodness and your promise so we can lean into that this Christmas season. Amen.